Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse by background and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome back to today's co-host, fellow committee member, Professor Alison Leary. Hello, Alison. How are you as we come towards the end of what I know has been a busy week for you? Hi, Rachel. I'm really good. And uh, it, yeah, it was great to be in Manchester with with actual people for the first time in a very long time talking about patient safety. For those who may not be familiar with the Patient Safety Congress, Alison, what is it and why is it such an important fixture on your calendar? Patient Safety Congress is, is quite a big conference and this year it's been, um, a lot of it's been recorded for uh, online. So it's, it's, it's quite an accessible kind of conference, I think. And it attracts all sorts of different people. And one of the really interesting things about Patient Safety Congress, I think, is the fact that they have lots of patients and families um, coming and leading sessions, which gives a real insight into patient safety from, from a different perspective. We're going to talk a bit more about the Congress um, in a little while, but also there this week was today's special guest, Jonathan Hazan, who's the Chair of Patient Safety Learning. So hello, Jonathan, and, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Oh, well, hello, uh, and, and, and thanks very much, uh, Rachel. I am uh, yeah, absolutely delighted to be here. And yes, I had a great time, actually, at the Patient Safety Congress. That was um, the, the first conference I've been to in person. For, for well over a year, and uh, I, I would echo what Alison has, has said about about its importance and the very much the, the presence of, of, of patients and relatives talking about their experience at the Congress too. And what, Jonathan, would have been your own sort of particular highlights or things that really struck home from this year's event? Oh, well, heavens. Um, there's, I mean, there was so much. It was basically two days packed full of talks of of people speaking, getting together, conversations, networking about patient safety. I, I think one of the, the main things for me was actually being able to to see people in person, see people who I, I've known for years but have you know, not been able to connect with over, over the past year or so. Um, and that networking side of things is, is incredibly valuable in patient safety. You get to remake those old connections, make new connections, talk about what you've been doing, talk about what's important to people, both professionals and also the patients and, and the relatives. So for me, that was that was certainly one of the highlights. Providing healthcare is complex and sometimes things go wrong. The consequences of that may be minor, but they can be catastrophic. So first, we're going to talk about how we report incidents and near misses in healthcare and how we learn from them. Jonathan, your own career in patient safety started, I understand, in software development with Datix, a name familiar, I'm sure, to all those working in healthcare, but probably not to some others. What is Datix and how does it contribute to patient safety? Well, Datix is the system that the majority of NHS organisations and a number of private sector providers and a number of other organisations in the UK use for incident reporting and learning primarily. 
So if an incident occurs or a, a near miss occurs, any sort of type really, all the way from, say, a patient fall, a medication error, uh, an error in surgery, uh, or a health and safety incident affecting a member of staff, a member of staff has a, a, a slip, trip, or a fall, or a needle stick injury, then um, uh, someone will, will put that into an online form, which will feed into the Datix system. And the information then goes through a workflow. Depending on the type of incident or the severity of the incident, there'll be an investigation uh, in order to try and get to the causes of the incident. And then that information will be used to put in place recommendations and actions to stop that incident occurring again. Yeah, I think it's become, hasn't it, a sort of, you know, have you dated it? It's <laughs> yes. become almost a verb and certainly... Um, having been in nursing a long time, when Datix first came in, was a significant improvement on our own old um, incident reporting books with lots of different copies. And I um, don't know where any of them all went, but I suspect to a cupboard somewhere. Well, does some that information, Jonathan, is, is it looked at just at an organisational level or does it funnel up to some sort of national reporting system? It started off just being looked at at a local level. So you had all of these Datix databases in, in all of these different NHS trusts, uh, which was just sort of being held locally. And every trust had a slightly different way of doing it, or in some cases, a very different way of doing it. If you looked at some of the paper report forms that predated Datix, they could look very, very different. So we came along and when electronic incident report forms became a possibility, we basically said, look, we can take these these paper forms and translate them into electronic forms. So you had all of these different hospitals recording incidents slightly differently on, on slightly different incident report forms, all held locally. So the learning was there at the, uh, at, the, at the local level, at the trust level. The problem with that, of course, if you had, say, fairly rarely recurring incidents, you couldn't really detect patterns of how serious something was happening. You, you, you couldn't see how many of these incidents were perhaps happening, even in the same town but or the same region, and certainly, certainly not nationally. In, uh, I think, about 2000, the, uh, the, the Department of Health and the government set up the uh, National Patient Safety Agency, or NPSA. And one of the things that they were set up to do was to create a central system for recording all of these incidents that were being reported from all of these diverse places across England and Wales. And that system was uh, went live in 2003. It was called the National Reporting and Learning System, or NRLS, and all of the NHS trusts in England and Wales had to report all their patient safety incidents into this central system. This, of course, meant you needed to have some kind of consistency between the different trusts. So at Datix, we created something called the Common Classification System, which sought to unify all of these disparate ways of doing things. So suddenly you were able to go from not being able to compare one trust against the other or not being able to have a sort of big repository of incidents because they were all being recorded and classified differently to being able to, to centrally look at all of these, these different types of incidents. So certainly that is, is something that changed over the years when I was, um, when I was involved in agents. Of course, the trusts can still look at the incidents that are happen, happening locally 
locally because their databases are still held locally. But you now have this national uh, repository, which in fact has been um, updated and is just in the process of being replaced uh, with a, a new system fit for the 21st century. So, Jonathan, how did your work on Datix then lead you to set up patient safety learning? I, I started at Datix many, many years ago uh, in 1995. Uh, and eventually in 2009, I was made chief executive of the, the organization. And, uh, uh, and, and as part of that, I, I took the business international. Uh, we had our first international customers in Canada and, uh, and then in the US. Uh, the Department of Defense, by the way, in the United States uses Datix in their military healthcare system. And throughout all of that, uh, I got a, gained a really deep appreciation of the differences and similarities in patient safety all over the world, uh, I got an appreciation that you know, people were doing different patient safety initiatives in different organizations and not sharing that information, some coming to the same conclusion, some coming to, to different conclusions. Um, but again, there was no real connection between different organizations doing all of these different initiatives. Something else that uh, happened to me when I was uh, at Datix was I started to try and find out, you know, why we were doing this. I, I started to meet some harmed patients and, and campaigners, and that had a, a, a very, very deep uh, and profound effect on me because I, I suddenly realised there was a, another side to all of this. You know, I've been dealing with uh, the trusts and people in trusts directly, but not having had a chance to talk to the patients who had been harmed. Um, so around about 2015, uh, I kind of realized that I, I probably didn't want to be chief executive of Datix for that much longer. So I, I looked to try and find a replacement for, for myself. And I, I appointed my replacement at the end of 2015. And in discussions with him, I, I, I said, look, it is so important what I'm doing here in Datix, which is um, making sure that everyone in Datix understands this is about patient safety. We're not just a software provider. Um, I said, look, I would like to, you know, maybe sort of sort of continue this work. Uh, and is there something that we can perhaps do together to set up some kind of foundation or, or, or charity? So Datix very very kindly agreed to give us some seed funding to set up. The, uh, a, a charity which then became known as Patient Safety Learning. But the, the drive for that really came for me wanting to continue my work to ensure that, that we could you know, continue the learning from, from things that go wrong in healthcare. Um, I, when I was at Datix, I, I, I created a, a mission statement for us, which I, I think should probably still hold today, which is we help our customers protect patients from harm by creating opportunities to learn from things that go wrong. And I wanted to take that and, and take that sort of learning element into a, a new organization. So that was very much the impetus for setting up patient safety learning to ensure that people will continue to, to learn from things that go wrong in healthcare and also to share and spread that learning throughout the world, not just the UK. I know one of the other things you've done through patient safety learning just recently is published a a blueprint for action, um, I think you call it, for a patient-safe future. And what are the foundations that you set out in that blueprint? Um, certainly, we, there are a number of foundations, but I think overarching this, the, the sort of um, foundation of the foundations, I suppose you, you might say, uh, is the that we want patient safety to be recognised as a core purpose of healthcare 
not just another priority. You know, you hear NHS trust chief executives after these disasters stand up on TV and say patient safety is our number one priority. The, the, the other side of that, of course, is if it's the number one priority today, it could become the number two priority tomorrow or the number three priority after that. So, But we don't want patient safety to be just another priority which can be traded off against others. It needs to be a core purpose. And we identified a number of foundations on which this could be built, uh, the six of them, shared learning for patient safety, that is the, the patient safety learning hub, leadership for patient safety, the importance of, 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 of good leadership, uh, wise leadership, compassionate leadership uh, for, to, to ensure that, that patient safety is, is, is well understood and embedded professionalizing patient safety, ensuring that it's not just, you know, a a sort of byproduct of people's day jobs. Of course, it's a a very important part of everything that people do, but it is also important to recognize that the job of patient safety is is a job and a skill in its own right. Patient engagement for patient safety is the is the fourth foundation, uh, uh, and that is about engaging patients to be empowered in the safety of their, their own care. And in fact, we've done quite a lot of work with this. We've been approached by a number of, of different patient campaign groups, including Painful Hysteroscopy and the Long COVID Network. And in fact, we've created areas on our hub where people can, can communicate and converse. And we've certainly been participating in these groups and, and trying to amplify, amplify their, their voices. Data and insight for patient safety, obviously where, where I've come from, uh, data, data was, was incredibly important. Data was absolutely vital and actually using that data for insights. And we've been trying to promote that. Uh, and finally, the sixth foundation is, is just culture. And, and we want to promote a, a fair and just culture for people working in healthcare and, and patients. We talk about safe staffing a lot at the RCN, Jonathan, um, but we've never really defined what safe is. And I'm always struck by what James Reason said, that safety is more the absence of harm. But we spend a lot of time measuring harm, um, including the recording of incidents. So I was just thinking, do you see a time when we'll be able to measure safety in nursing as opposed to recording harm? Um, I mean, that's a very good question, Alison. I uh, I mean, the short answer is is probably not. I, I think for me, it's about everyone being aware of safety all the time rather than being something that is that is measured i've always been a little bit skeptical about maybe this is is probably the wrong thing to say having come from data skeptical about measuring uh safety through the lens of incident reporting uh you have you collect a number of incidents you look at the numbers of incidents from one area to another you you the, the collection of incidents certainly at the moment is really not a great way of measuring safety in an organisation. I always remember people being surprised when they put in a new dating system uh, and they were surprised that the number of incidents went up and they were questioned mm. at the board level that we put this system in, the number of incidents has, has, has increased. This shouldn't have happened. And it's actually because you're, you're making it easier for people to report incidents that it's gone up or, or, or people have that awareness that the incident reporting system has gone in and they can now report incidents. So is it will it be possible to measure safety? Yeah, quite possibly. I'm not sure how at the moment. Um, mm. I don't know how helpful it would be looking at it certainly through the lens of incident reporting, which is, is my specialist subject, so to speak. Alison, do you think there's a, a way we could measure safety in nursing effectively? I think there's there are sort of aspects of 
things like safety culture that we could look at. Even though I like measuring things, being a mathematician, um, yeah. there are some things I think you can't measure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but certainly I think, you know, things like safety culture. One of the um, speakers at the Patient Safety Congress was Rona Flynn, who's a psychologist, and she talked quite a lot about safety culture and, and, and vigilance and things like that, things that nurses do, actually. I was really keen to see her because I heard her speak at the King's Fund in 2013 about the Francis report. And one of the things that struck me then was she was sort of saying, you know, that, that trust did all these surveys and the patient experience surveys and staff experience surveys. And then the data just sort of sat there. I think we need a radical shift, really, in, in what we mean by safety in healthcare. But if we think about harm, then there are times when a serious incident in healthcare sadly does result in the death of a patient. And coroners in England and Wales are under a statutory duty to issue a prevention of future death report to any person or organisation where they believe that action could, action should be taken to prevent future deaths in similar circumstances. So reports that help to identify what went wrong as well as what could be done to stop it happening again. Alison, you presented at the Patient Safety Congress the findings of a study reviewing these reports and pulled out some of the key themes from your findings. So are these reports a good source of wider learning from the things that go wrong in one particular organisation that can be applied across the board? Yeah, I mean, these reports certainly offer insight. It's interesting to see certain organisations getting more than one of these reports about the same kind of concerns from coroners. The most mm. common concern from coroners from our analysis was misdelayed or uncoordinated care. So things like not having a care plan or not having care evaluated and, and it basically the absence of the nursing process, actually. So I think there is learning to be done. When you look at them as a group, we looked at about 700 of them. I think mm. for individual organisations, they are hopefully quite rare. So certainly at a system level, I think they can offer real insight. And you said that one of the key themes was around sort of missed or uncoordinated care what what were the other themes that that really stood out for you from that analysis some of the other themes were around lack of skill and lack of knowledge coroners often comment on policy and we, we didn't look at coroners recommendations particularly but quite often they would mention that there was no policy or that the policy wasn't followed and then they would recommend there being a policy, which sort of seems a bit self-defeating, because if people aren't following the policy in the first place, then another policy probably isn't going to fix the problem. And we're obviously very reliant on policies in healthcare to mitigate risk. And, and I think that's something we should probably look at and think about other approaches to managing risk. And Jonathan, I know at patient safety learning, you also identify the importance of learning from these prevention of future death reports. What would you like to see to ensure that this learning is is shared more effectively? And and I guess most importantly, and as Alison, I think, indicates there, really leading to change and improvement. What I would really like to see is, I suppose, a, a proper central database of these prevention and future death reports, uh, much like the National Reporting and, and Learning System, but um, obviously structured differently. Because at the moment, I mean, I, I sat in on, on a talk a few years ago by the, the chief coroner, Mark Lucroft, at the Royal Society of Medicine. And, uh, and and he basically he talked about these prevention of future death reports, how you could find them on the uh, on the chief coroner's website, 
but they were basically just scanned in images, scanned into a, a PDF document, which in other words means you can't extract the data from them, you can't search on them, you can't search for different findings and conclusions. I think it would be tremendously useful, for example, if, if a coroner who is, is working on an inquest is able to look back through other prevention of future death reports to see if a similar issue and similar recommendations have, have come up somewhere else somewhere in, in the country in another inquest. And it would be tremendously useful also for trusts and workers in patient safety to be able to interrogate this, this database of, of prevention of future death reports look at things broken down into various different classifications and analyse this data to see what, what, what learning can be taken out of it. Alison, I presume a database like that would have been helpful for you <laughs> in that work. Yeah, yeah, they, they were very hard. We ended up extracting them all by hand. But I mean, they, they are so relevant to nursing. Most of them are around nursing care, which surprised me um, and, and sort of disappointed me, actually. And they cite everything from advanced practice, which is becoming a feature in them. So we've actually given that data to the regulator. But also, I mean, 10% of the the ones that happened in care homes were around residents that had choked because they were either receiving food from people not trained to feed someone or they were given the wrong kind of food. So, you know, quite fundamental things, actually. and, And, you know, no care plan being in place, no evaluation of the care plan. So I think they're they're very the learning from them is very very relevant to nursing. And you said that one of the themes was kind of missed care and and a lack of coordination of care. Could you see there anything around either staffing levels or training that stood out to you? You know, we as you said, we talk about safe staffing. Is that one of the things that um, in those reports there's reflection of inadequate staffing levels, or is it more a a lack of knowledge and skills that that's there. It's interesting because the, the coroners don't explicitly mention staffing levels very often, but sort of allude to them. But one of the, the interesting things is, as, as you know, we mine Datix. We look at Datix data for organisations. Mm. and We looked at the literature as well. And, and then there's a clear sort of, of the pattern we, we found in the Prevention of Future Death Notices from coroners is very much echoed in the... Uh, instant reporting data in the free text of Datix and, and other instant reporting systems. So it could be that they are a warning. I mean, basically, once you've got a prevention of future death notice, it's too late, really. Um, but you see the same themes crop up in instant reporting. So it, it's something about acting sooner. It's a great phrase, um, mining Datix reports. Just um, just tell us what you mean by that. Uh, so we, we extract all the instant reports from an organisation or several organisations are as we are at the minute, and then we look mm. for patterns in them. Mm-hmm. So um, we look for some interesting things. So the, the things that, that Jonathan was talking about earlier, when you when you introduce Datix into a, an organisation, the instant reporting goes up. We've, we've seen that. We've also seen when you improve staffing, instant reporting of minor harm or near misses goes up and major harm comes down so you you definitely see these patterns Um, and we also do things look like we look for profanity in the free text of datix so we look for people getting frustrated and swearing (laughs) Uh, because i mean they're all they're all signals to culture yeah absolutely maybe that's one way of measuring safety accounting for the number of (laughs) the frequency of swear words yeah Jonathan, would you recognise that sort of pattern of 
incident reporting going up and down being actually a reflection of what's happening within an organisation? Yeah, very much so. It's a good reflection of culture, the sort of percentage of low harm incidents to, to serious incidents. And certainly, you know, I've, I've, I sort of work with Alison looking at the findings of the reports that, that she's, she's done on the data mining. And, and this certainly is, is very much something I recognise and recognise from other things that I've, I've seen and been told anecdotally as well. But actually having the evidence there in the data from the data mining is extremely compelling. Healthcare's complex, isn't it? It's, it's delivered by people and, and people do make mistakes. And we often talk about a, a no-blame culture, a culture where we encourage people to report the things that go wrong and or the things that could have gone wrong if someone hadn't stepped in at a critical time. But Jonathan, you mentioned a little earlier in the podcast a, a just culture. Mm. And should we talk more about a just culture? So a culture where people are held to account for their actions or their inactions if they're deliberately negligent. Or indeed, sadly, we know there are those who do intend to cause harm on very rare occasions. So I guess it's not really a no-blame culture, but one that understands when things go wrong, there's a bigger picture and, and it's sometimes systems that fail. So having worked in patient safety for a long time, what do you think the barriers are to having a just culture? Well, I mean, let's first of all look at what, what we mean by a just culture. Mm. Different people have slightly def- different, in some cases, very different definitions of, of, of just culture. We used to talk a lot about a blame-free or no-blame culture. And yes, you're mm. right, it's not appropriate. People do need to be held to account, but you have to do it appropriately. My favourite definition of just culture comes from a, an American author and, and someone who's done a lot of work in this area called David Marks from his book, Whack-A-Mole, which gives a definition of, of just culture as console the human error, coach the at-risk behaviour and punish the negligent behaviour, regardless mm. of the outcome. Uh, and that last mm. bit is, is very important. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But console the human error basically if someone's made a genuine mistake um you know there's been a sort of an an accident then you know of course they shouldn't be be punished for that if you punish someone for making a a mistake then that is inimical to learning it's 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 bad for safety people will see that they've been punished and People will not come up and report incidents in the future because they think they're going to get into trouble. They think they're going to be punished. Therefore, the learning is lost. Um, similarly, coach the at-risk behaviour. This is where, I don't know, someone's been in, involved in risky behaviour. Not necessarily. They don't think they've done anything, doing anything particularly wrong. It's not negligent. This is how they've become used to doing it, taking a shortcut to do something. Um, that requires coaching or, or training. Again, not punishment. But where something does require punishment, reckless behaviour or criminal behaviour, you know, similar to, to drink driving, you know it's wrong, you know you shouldn't do it, you know it's against the law, you do it anyway, that does require appropriate punishment. And yes, some of this language is slightly American and slightly American-centric, but um, that is, uh, I think, one of my, my, de- my favourite definitions of just culture. Turning now to the barriers to just culture, I think one of them is probably not not understanding what just culture is in the first place, um, perhaps not realising what it is. 
but also, you know, in an environment where people are very much under pressure all the time because of staffing, resourcing, political pressure or whatever, it's very, very easy then just to slip back into a, a blame thing, to start shouting at your colleagues, to start, start saying to people, you know, don't report this incident because it's going to make me look bad. I'm going to have to do something about it. So if you get stuck into that poor culture, uh, it, it's very it's, it can be difficult then to say okay we're going to go ahead and implement a, a, a just culture and I suppose thirdly if you do not have support from the very highest levels within your organization chief executive medical director sort of level for implementing a just culture then you, you're not going to get very far with it this this kind of thing needs not only to you know, be understood and implemented from the bottom up but also very much from the top down all of these things apply regardless of the outcome and that is very important because effectively even if there is a very very serious outcome patient death for example mm. if it is a genuine human error you should not punish it that can be quite hard for people to understand. But again, you know, you will not be able to learn if you are if you punish someone for making a, a mistake, for making a genuine error. So regardless of the outcome can be the hardest part to get to grips with and to understand, because inevitably, um, you know, a lot of the time people are, are looking are looking for punishment if you have a very severe consequence. And it takes a very, very strong leadership to protect that person who's made that error from being punished for making a mistake. I think it's so difficult, isn't it? And I think having been you know involved in errors where the outcome has been catastrophic but actually the mistake made is the same mistake so you know giving a drug by a wrong route can have a really fairly minor consequence in some cases but can also have an absolutely catastrophic consequence and I think it's really difficult to think about how you treat those two extremes and and I think also then when you've got as you say the the harmed patient that you're also supporting yes that's right and you know there have been some fairly catastrophic you know failures to understand this this just and implement this just culture principle mm-hmm. over over the years in the tragic case of, of wayne jowett who was um administered uh Christine by the wrong route and and, and tragically died the, uh, the the special registrar who administered the, the drug even though this was a human error even though this was a systems error where so many different factors contributed to this he was prosecuted and convicted and, and that really was that was a a, a very regrettable case and again it, it potentially prevents people from coming forward in the future to say they've made a, a, a similar mistake so this this can be learned from. Alison if we're thinking about a, a just culture and thinking about that in terms of nursing how do you think we can ensure that we're fair in the way that we work with those who are involved in in errors and, and incidents? Cultures are very hard to change and, and there's a, a chap that does a lot of human factors work and he, he always says you can't work on culture without working on the work. His name's Stephen Shorrock. And I think this is one of the things, until we address a lot of the systemic issues around things like workload and some of the structural issues that people face, I think a just culture is going to be very difficult to achieve. It doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think one of the ways that you know things could improve is by normalising talking about things when they don't go well. At the moment, I think people are in, in a sort of place of defence, so, it, I mean, you can see this at the moment that when there's any criticism, particularly by the public, actually, of 
of care or or in the services provided, the the service goes on the defence. And that's because people are in probably quite a negative place um, and are not able to have a conversation really about these things openly. So one of the things we need to do is normalise being able to discuss things when they don't go well. And I think actually being able to say sorry. (laughs) Because so often I think if you can say sorry, saying sorry is not always enough in its own right but it's it's so important I think I I don't know Jonathan if that's anything that comes through in sort of work that you've done with with patients or patient organizations that acknowledging a mistake and and working together to try and and put some of that right yes certainly what I have heard consistently from from patients who've been harmed or who have lost relatives to harm is that what they want, what they wanted, was for someone to explain truthfully what happened, what went wrong, to apologise to them for that happening, and to let them know what is going to happen to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else. And it's when patients don't get that, that they they, they are driven to, to take alternative courses, such as you know, taking lawsuits out against the, the, the NHS. Uh, mm. And, you know, a lot of organisations go on the defensive when they are, uh, when they're criticised, when they're accused. And the worst uh, cases happen when the organisations aren't truthful about what happened and, and, and try and cover up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one of the really big issues that we've got so many things that are putting pressure on. So not just demand for healthcare but also uh, a workforce that's in, under increasing stress, um, political pressure, financial pressure. It, it's kind of a perfect storm, isn't it, really, for in terms of patient safety? And we've seen this again and again in many different inquiries. You know, it, it was a similar kind of thing in Francis. So until we tackle a lot of the underlying issues, I think really moving very far on patient safety and patient safety culture is going to be quite challenging. Although some organisations do do it. You've seen you know, some real success stories out there. Mm. Were there any sort of big successes from the Patient Safety Congress that you think uh, would be good to celebrate or to share? Jonathan, anything from you that really struck in excellent practice that m- people could do more of? Well, I think what I, one of the, the presentations I particularly enjoyed, I, I chaired a stream on, on human factors in healthcare and, and using human mm. factors to improve patient safety. And there was some really interesting talk. So one that stood out for me, and you know, apologies, but it was, it, was, it was slightly technical, but I'm a, a slightly technical person. I'm a computer <laughs> scientist, so I, I love this sort of thing. Uh, was some work that had been done at the uh, Birmingham Women's and Children's uh, Hospital which was uh, about redesigning their PUSE form, the Paediatric Early Warning System. And they had a form which they thought was great. Uh, and, you know, they were people were telling them they were having trouble filling it in and they were finding these sort of um, forms that weren't filled in or people didn't want to fill them in. So they got an independent human factor, ergonomic specialist in, to help them redesign this form. Uh, and they went from... Uh, a form that was difficult to fill in to one that was, um, you know, an awful lot easier by basically using someone who had you know, no knowledge of the, the processes or anything could ask you know, what 
what many would consider to be stupid questions without sort of fear of that and could sort of go around and uh, also had the, the byproduct of that is that they they were able to ask staff what was going wrong and what was going right in their areas and be able to feed that back as well which was an interesting uh, sort of byproduct of the whole process but they were then able to redesign this form so that it could be filled in a lot more successfully there were a couple of questions there was one question which said um, how is your child different today asking that of the parent because uh, that immediately meant that you were asking the parent assuming there was something wrong because often the parents were, were reluctant to say you know, volunteer if something is wrong but if you ask it in that way assuming something is wrong they're much more likely to say well my child wasn't hugging me today as usual like that so I thought that was uh, very important and then they put another question in which was asking the nurse if they, they thought they, they noticed the difference if they thought there was there was anything wrong I think those are two of the most interesting things that came out of that particular presentation the way that they thought of adding these questions to and phrasing them in such a way that, that they elicited a response from from the parent and, and from the nurse so that that was certainly one of the standouts of the uh, uh, of the conference for me and as someone who always struggled with Pew's forms, then I, I hope that they share that. <laughs> and that's sort of both the perception of yeah. parents and, and the nurses sort of critical to take in and put alongside the numbers, which the forms yes, focus on. Yes, exactly. I, I believe there is a, an initiative to take this form and have it adopted as a national standard. Alison, what about for you? Any standout things that you think we deserve wider learning? Actually, from the conference, there was one thing that probably wouldn't get many people's attention, and it was about procurement, about NHS procurement and procurement chains. Because I know certainly from the work we do, things like breaks in supply chain, not having enough resources, causes a huge amount of workload for people in the NHS and social care, actually. I've never really thought about the procurement and supply chain as a safety-critical aspect of healthcare, but of course it is. And it would save a lot of people a lot of effort and I think actually reduce quite a lot of risk. There, there were some people from NHS procurement presenting some, some really good ideas and how they wanted to work with clinicians to sort of improve this. It just seems like a great opportunity, actually, to try and actually improve the lives of everybody. And I think could actually, as you say, make a big difference to patient safety, but also to the working lives of nurses and others on wards and in, in a whole range of settings. I think if you didn't have to send someone off looking for the thing that you were missing that day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it takes up, we know it takes up so much nursing time. Yeah. Um, you know, we know that from, from probably our own experiences, but also there's quite a lot of evidence for that. People do studies on it, but also, you know, having the right equipment in the right drawer being able to take bloods in a timely way you know mm. actually when you think about it it's really important and it's actually a really big safety issue but I doubt many other people would think about it in that way. So we're almost at the end of the podcast we'll be back in two weeks and we'd love to know what you'd like us to talk about. Tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters, and we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes of Nursing Matters. So for this week, thanks to our special guest, Jonathan Hazan. You're very welcome, Rachel. And my co-host, Alison Leary. Thanks, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. 